Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host Kevin Appleby and with me today I've got Richard Nugent from 21 Leadership. And Richard and I ended up getting to know each other through a mutual contact, Michael Heppel. And we started talking about leadership, the leadership team not being joined up in their thinking and wondering why the rest of the business, when it comes to strategy, when it comes to culture, whether it comes to customer service, the leadership team saying, why don't they get it? Well, we're going to explore why they don't get it today and realize that most of the time it comes down to you, the leadership team. So. Richard, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Kevin. I'm excited about this conversation. So, Richard, tell me a little bit more about this. Leadership teams and businesses that aren't joined up in their thinking. This comes from some work that we've been doing over about five years now, and it's emerged. But it's such an interesting conversation when we find that less than 5% In fact, I think it's probably way less than 3% of the most senior teams and organizations are aligned in their thinking about strategy, culture, and what we call the X. And the X is customer experience plus brand in its proper truest essence. So we've asked hundreds of the most senior teams in big organizations, organizations of all sizes, but some really big, you know, multi-billion pound organizations. We asked them six questions to understand how aligned they are across those three areas. And in less than 3% of cases, do those senior teams give the same answers as each other? Before we even get into conversations about what I think strategy is or what I think culture is, they aren't aligned with their colleagues. And as you say, if they aren't aligned at the top team, how can those people down the organisation understand what they should be doing strategically and culturally? That is absolutely fascinating. 3% are aligned. Mm. Now, I would have thought in most businesses, though, the senior team have all got a pretty clear idea about where the business is going, what the objectives are, what we need to do next. And I can see already you're shaking your head and saying, no, Kevin, that's not the case at all. So tell me more, Richard. Well, let me give you an example. This was from a few years ago in our kind of pivotal moment, not because it was a huge organization or a really big brand or anything, but it was such a moment of clarity of exactly what you just said. Oh, no, we think this is the case, but it's not. So we were working with a technology company and it was successful. It was about a hundred million pound business and they had their latest round of investment and their strategic goal, their overall key strategic objective was relatively clear. They had to grow from a hundred million pound business to a 300 million pound business in three years. What wasn't happening was the senior team wasn't really aligned in how they operate. They didn't really work as a team. So we were asked to do some work with them to bring them together as a team. But we asked the six questions we always asked at the beginning. And so we asked, what is strategy and what is your key strategic objective? They were the first two questions that we asked out of the six. And when we got the answers back, actually, there was relative alignment about what their definition of strategy is. But when we asked, what is our overall key strategic objective? There were only seven people in that senior team, including the CEO, who was also the founder. And out of those seven people, we got six different answers as to what the key strategic objective was. Now, remember, the key strategic objective was, I think, as straightforward as you can get. 
move 100 million to 300 million in three years and everybody had either a slightly different iteration or they were quoting what the vision was or some of them was quote, were quoting what their deliverables were for their business unit but six different answers from seven people in the most senior team in that business and I say well how first of all how can you possibly be really aligned as a team bear in mind we haven't even got into culture yet but just if we don't know what we're all shooting for but then there were some downstream problems where they had different sales teams who were competing against each other there was real discord in the next tier down in the organization and I said maybe that's not even a cultural problem it's a strategic problem because you all aren't all shooting for the same thing and we have this time and time and time again where people think they're aligned and they're not okay so just think about that example and i think you're pretty spot on about where the sort of businesses that probably a lot of our audience are finance leaders in 300 million fast growing tech company wanted to grow to 300 million that that's not unusual so the finance leader would normally be one of the leadership teams team in that organization so with their own opinion of what the strategic objectives are, what the culture is, and so on. So, okay, we've got those split opinions. What do we do about it? What's the finance leader's role in it? That's a brilliant question. And that's one of the really interesting things for me when we start digging into this and we start feeding the results back of this really fairly simple questionnaire is to understand where the power really lies in the relationships within the senior team. Because it actually sheds a real spotlight on how much opinion there is in this simple question. So I think the role of the CFO in the organizations we work with is really in the most human way possible to hold the other leaders accountable for what is really a deliverable and what isn't. So I would assume that if we were to take the finance strategy, if we were looking at the sub-strategy that sits under the CFO and where that feeds into the overall key strategic objective, I reckon that would be full of really good, solid, smart objectives that all connect up together to deliver whatever sits at the top of the FD or the CFO's um, strategy. But when you get into things like marketing and HR, you know, I'm as much HR as I am anything else. Quite often, those people find it hard to quantify a proper strategic objective. They'll say we can't do that. So they'll say things like we want our strategic objective is to improve the employee experience, for example, which is a really noble pursuit, but it's not a smart objective. So actually, I think there's almost like a facilitation role or a role as an internal consultant to enable others around the table have these conversations about what are strategic objectives and what aren't strategic objectives. To give you another example, we worked with another company who, again, are fundamentally a, a tech company. They're, a, they're more of an entertainment business, but it's built on good tech. And I had a conversation with the top two people in that business and, again, asked them the same question, what's the overall key strategic objective? They were looking to build a three-year strategy. And one person who was the CEO at the time came in and they said, oh, we need to get the 1.5 billion. He left and the CEO came in, asked the same question. They said, oh, we need to get to 997 million. So we'll call it a billion. And they both went out and the other people who were in the room from the organization said, there you go, we are aligned. And it was up to me to say, you do know you are half a billion dollars out on those numbers, right? And then we got into a conversation about, is that the only thing that sits in the key strategic objective? Should there be a 
people number, you know, to do with engagement or advocacy versus as an employer. And very quickly, you get into answers that aren't really, again, aren't measurable, aren't smart, aren't strategic. So having a CFO playing the role, again, of a facilitator as a consultant, not even just to hold people accountable to the numbers, but to make sure they're accountable to creating proper strategic measures would be a huge benefit for the majority of clients we work with. And that's not to say that none of them do, but in those difficult conversations where a marketing director or an IT director, I was speaking to somebody last week who is a CIO and a big part of his role is cybersecurity. So you're saying, how do I create strategic objectives where the whole point of cybersecurity is to stop things happening? Being able to have a conversation with a CFO who is probably got a, a different way of thinking, a different skill set to help a fellow director form those kind of thoughts into a proper strategic objective would be incredibly valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we're going to end up really, really violently agreeing with each other in this recording. Because number one thing that I firmly believe in is that KPIs, scorecards, dashboards, etc., should be the responsibility of the finance team. Right. My reasoning for that is thinking, hang on a minute, the first thing you always want is one version of the truth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You don't want the sales team, the marketing team, and the finance team all giving three different interpretations of what the sales number is, purporting to be the same thing, but subtly different. So around anything you want to measure, you want rules, you want ownership, and you want to sort of measure it to a fixed drumbeat. What are the finance team really good at? They're good at publishing things, closing things down to a fixed drumbeat, doing it in a certain way with a certain amount of rigor around it that satisfies auditors and so on, putting processes in place to do it. I think finance team looking after all of the key non-financial data is one of the things you want to do. If that's the case, you start off by saying, well, what are our strategic objectives? And you've got to start agreeing what those top level metrics are. And then that's surely the point at which you start cascading them to the rest of the business. Yeah, you bring up all sorts of interesting things. One is how the strategic process actually comes about. So my strategic story is for years, I avoided strategy because I thought I was the only one who didn't understand what strategy was. You know, I thought everyone else, when they talked about strategy, knew what it was, and I was the only one that wasn't. And eventually, a client kind of backed me into a corner in a really nice way to the point where I was going to lose them as a client if we didn't do more strategic work. So I went into this whole kind of study program of my own where I wanted to make sure that I could go into a client and that I could give a definition of strategy that I was really happy with and that I could defend, but also a strategic process that I could teach people. And out of that, there was this realization that very few people follow the same strategic process. And I mean, within a single organization, I'm not talking about organization, organization. So our, our process is, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's relatively simple in that you formulate your key strategic objective for the organization, which might have one, two or three key measurables in you then look at that and you go through a really diligent process of just breaking that down and saying, so what do we need to have delivered in order to deliver that case strategic objective? And they become your, we call them enabling objectives. Some people would call them their, their strategic pillars or their strategic imperatives. But again, they must be smart. 
And then you look at each of those enabling objectives. And again, it's a process of systematically breaking down until you get the actions and the tactics that are the things that people are going to go away and do. Now, the interesting thing for me is if you follow that process diligently, it won't necessarily fit beautifully to the structure of the organization. So you may have people who are directors in one field who are in charge of a key strategic objective, who are accountable, if you like, of a strategic objective, which isn't fully within their area of professional expertise. And that should be fine because the alternative, and if we're truthful, it's what happens in most organizations is you're the FD, so you go in, you formulate your own kind of strategy or business plan. I'm the HR director, so I go away and do mine. The marketing director goes away and does theirs. The chief information officer goes on, does theirs, et cetera, et cetera. And what we do to form an organization strategy is we just kind of mash our individual strategies together. And that drives a couple of things. One, it drives silo working because we're all protecting our individual strategies. So lots of silo working in organizations isn't a cultural problem. It's a strategic problem. But the other thing is it's not efficient at all. Because in my HR strategy, I certainly have some finance stuff, that's for sure. And I've probably got some technical stuff as well. I want some systems in. So I've got a mini IT strategy in my HR strategy. And of course, the CIO needs some people. So he's got a resource and strategy in his. So we actually end up double handling lots of things, which again means we're fighting for our own positions rather than all being in service of one key strategic objective. So if we all have one truth, you know, to use your term, like I think that it wouldn't just make the relationships better in the organization, but it would make it leaner, would probably save some money along the way. Yeah, that silo thing is an interesting one to break down. Literally, before we switch the microphones on to record this, I was running a workshop, module nine on our future CFO program, which is all about your first 100 days in your CFO role. And we talk a lot in there about building a blueprint for your new finance team, setting out your objectives and so on. Now, that, as I think about it, would logically then take you into the sort of silo working that we're saying could cause a problem here. How in practical terms do you avoid that? No, I've got a finance transformation strategy here. I've got an HR strategy. How in practical terms do you avoid those things becoming silos? Mm. Well, one is to make sure the key strategic objectives, the business's objectives are clear in the line between everybody, because if we all know what we're shooting for, from a leadership perspective, it then becomes less about our technical expertise and more about what is it we're looking to collectively deliver. You know, one of the things we start with in a lot of our leadership development programs is a bit of an insight into the distinction between, if you like, leading and managing. And this idea that leaders work on the business and managers work in the business. Yeah. And a lot of people, even at board level, are still working in the business too much. You know, they're still referring back to their areas of expertise. Whereas if I'm a CFO, and this is true again of a CEO or any exec member, then actually it should be primarily about my leadership capability backed up by my technical expertise. There there should be a bit of a shift as to what's really important. So part of it is knowing what's right at the very top and making sure what we're doing is delivering into that. Then actually what we're starting to step into is a little bit of cultural stuff. And the culture of the organization should be part of the strategic conversation. And this, again, was part of what we emerged out of this work that we've been doing that 
in so many organizations, strategy and culture aren't just talked about separately, but actually they're talked about almost at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's like strategy in some organizations, strategy is the important commercial stuff and the culture is the nice fluffy stuff that sits around it. Or in other organizations, it's like we need to be a purpose-driven organization and it's all about making it a great place to work. And then the kind of the deliverables will emerge from that. And both those things are myths. Actually, shouldn't your strategy start with your values? The way we see it, it's the other way around. Right. Okay. So the way we see it is your culture has to be shaped to be a strategic enabler. Right. So if we are a fast-paced, fast-growing organization that's going to treble in size over the next three years, then how we be, which is our definition of culture, culture is how we be around here. It's a whole combination of how we show up every day in the moment. It's what we make important, what we allow, and actually how we go about doing the work. Everything about how we be needs to be developed to help us to deliver that strategic intent. Whereas, you know, we do some work in housing associations and there's a huge amount of change going in in that sector, but it's different to, it tends to be a little bit steadier than some of the other sectors we work in. Or if I take building societies, that may be an even better example. Most building societies aren't looking for huge growth, which means, but they are very, very, very members focused. So again, that means the culture has to be shaped in a slightly different way to if we're a fast-growing entertainment organization. So one of the key drivers of our culture should be, what is the strategy we're looking to deliver? And therefore, what purpose, values, and vision do we need to bring to life to enable the strategy that we want to deliver? That's why, so, you know, first couple of questions we ask people are, what is strategy? What is your key strategic objective? The next two questions we ask is, What is your definition of culture? And on a scale of one to six, to what degree does your current culture enable the delivery of your strategic objectives? Because then actually it's not about are we building a culture which is making this a nice place to work or about times top 100 or best companies. Not that that's bad, but that shouldn't be the primary focus. The primary focus is are we building a culture that helps us to deliver what we deliver? Because if your culture isn't a strategic enabler, it's a strategic blogger. That's a phrase I'm going to remember. If your culture isn't a strategic enabler, it's a strategic blocker. Yeah. And that's why we asked that question. Because if on a scale of one to six, and that's just my scale that I use, to what degree does your current culture help to deliver your strategic objective? It, again, it shifts this focus away from whether this is about it being a nice place to work and on to are we shaping what we need to deliver what we need to deliver? And inherent in that question is, are we clear on what we need to deliver? So I worked for an organization where we asked um, the leadership team of the biggest part of the organization. You know, these were leading thousands and thousands of people globally, these questions. And they all marked themselves fives and sixes. So on a scale of one to six, to what degree is culture helping to deliver the strategy? Fives and six. But... When I went back to the answer to number two, which is what is the key strategic objective, they all had different answers. So again, they weren't clear on what the strategic goals were. So then you look back and go, okay, so actually we can't possibly be saying we're a five or a six because we don't know what it is we're aiming for. So what that's telling me is this is quite a nice place to work. We're quite a nice team. We've got a nice culture, but that doesn't mean that that culture is right for where we're going. And actually that was... 
fairly revolutionary for that team because what it then surfaced was actually, yeah, as a leadership team, we don't challenge each other enough. We aren't robust enough to therefore be innovative in the way that we think and the way that we operate, which is actually getting in the way of what we need to deliver because they had some fairly ridiculous strategic goals that they needed to deliver. So on the backdrop of that is when you're having those conversations together, so you come to the same answers as each other, that starts to break down silos. Okay. Culture. So you realize quickly that you haven't got the right culture to support your strategic objectives. Now, culture, in my experience, is incredibly hard to change. It's something that's embedded in the organization. It's the way things get done around here. How do you start changing the culture? Or do you have to change the strategic objective to be in line with the culture you've got? (laughs) Again, it's kind of so lovely to be having this conversation with this audience because they'll, I think, get it more than many that we have this conversation with. So the starting point for culture change, again, we developed a culture change framework, a culture change approach. Oh, it must be about five or six years ago and refined it since. And we did it by modeling organizations that had started a purposeful culture change and got to the point they wanted to. And we also modeled a load of organizations that had started culture change and hadn't got to the point they wanted to. Either they just reverted or they'd ended up in a different place. And one of the things that became really clear really quickly, which we weren't expecting, we weren't looking for, was that your starting point for culture change has to be strategy, right? Right. In as much as we've got to have a business case for culture change. Okay. And it was so obvious because it was present in so many of the organizations that had been successful and it wasn't there at all in any of the ones that hadn't. And here's what happens. We say, right, we want to change the culture. We want to be a nicer place to work or we want to be best companies or, you know, all these things that you and people listening and watching this will have seen and heard a million times. And then what happens in six months time is there's a change in the market and the numbers crunch a little bit or something else comes along that becomes even more important. And therefore, the culture change goes from being the most important thing out there to being a little bit sidelined. And at that moment, we've got no hope. It's dead. In fact, we called our culture change model crossing the chasm because we found that there were these really important things that the moment they were missed, the whole culture change disappeared down into this big hole, never to be seen again. And that was the starting point. So we have to put a business case together for culture change in the same way as we put a robust business case together for building a new IT infrastructure or restructuring the organization or buying a new division. There's got to be a robust business case. Can I even challenge the word robust business case and say, is a better word for that a burning platform? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. Yes. However, some of the organizations that we modeled, and this has been true of some of the organizations we've worked with since, if we look at it through a commercial or strategic set of eyes, there wasn't burning platform there wasn't an obvious you know some of the organizations we work with aren't hemorrhaging people they aren't really short on resources they're just looking and saying we want a culture that's different you know where we were then isn't where we are now or we need to refresh it and we say that's fine but we want to refresh the the culture isn't a good enough what is the business case what's going to add value in order to do it so you're right it's creating a burning platform but through looking at it from a I guess a commercial lens Hmm. and then there's a part like this we aren't going to get to where we want to be absolutely 
And state, again, stating that in the same way is if we were trying to bring in a new finance system or any other thing that you yes. would want to do. But it's got to be then partnered with, once we've got that business case clear, actually having some definition of what we would call a stepping off point. What is the culture that we want to create? If we go through this process, how will we know when we're done? And again, it was really fascinating how many companies would start a culture change process without really knowing what they were aiming for at the end. And we still get this now quite often where somebody will come in and say, you know, we want some help changing the culture. We want to help refreshing the values or changing the vision or exploring purpose. And we'll say, okay, so if we do it and it's really successful and you get there, how will we know? I totally get that. You can say, okay, we're going from 100 million to 300 million. Okay, the finance system is going to break because of X, Y, and Z. We need a new finance system. We need a new finance system, therefore, that can handle all the things we're going to have as the 300 million business. Great. Oh, what's it going to cost? What's the time scale? Yeah, we've got the resources. What are the risks like? Yep. Okay, great. We have a business case. Tick. Let's go on and do it. Culture we've got now isn't going to work for a 300 million business. We need a different culture. Well, what sort of culture do you need? That is a very, very difficult question to answer. The normal answer is simply not the one we've got now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And in the absolute imperative of all of the senior team, again, being really clear and aligned on what that end point is. We often say we've kind of not done lots of work because this, unless you are committed at the very beginning to doing everything that's required to get to that point that you're really clear on, then don't start. Don't go out and say, well, we're going to do a culture change until everybody who sits around that top table is absolutely clear and aligned on what they're aiming for and that they're committed to doing what needs to be doing. Because the thinking to get to that, what we would call cultural narrative. It's really quite challenging. And then, of course, there's the other bit, which is one, you know, we get to that point and we have a beautifully shaped set of values, which are reflective of the values of the people who lead the organization. We get a lovely vision curated and we get people involved in doing it. And then actually lots of senior teams think that's job done, but actually that's just the tip of the iceberg. The work to actually bring the culture to life hasn't even really started at that point. So that's a very interesting area to go into. And that gave the example of, oh, we need a new finance system. I mean, I can instantly visualize what a program might look like to do that. Yeah. You look at some alternatives, you weigh up what the best one is, you start looking at a planning timeline, you decide when are you going to implement it, when's it going to go live, how long are you going to parallel run, when are you going to do your data transfer, how are you going to train your people to run the system, and then there's the day we switch off the old system and everything's live. Now you can see a very nice sequence that gets you from A to B. Hmm. Culture change, though. What do you actually do? Well, interesting, as you were going through, I was kind of visualising our framework, there is a similar process to it. Typically, we would start with the senior team. Culture change has to be both top down and bottom up. Unless you've got the senior team yep. absolutely, you know, again, aligned to it, nothing else is going to happen. In fact, one of the things we talk to clients about very early on is side bet theory. So this idea, 
For example, if you took a new job, somebody takes a new job, and with their increased salary, they then go out and buy a new car, then statistically, they're more likely to be successful in their new job because they've got something else riding on it. That's side bet theory. Simplified. The opposite of side bet theory is hedging. And we see a lot of hedging when it comes to culture change. So again, I'm generalizing here, but imagine we've got an exec team of seven people and we've got five people who are really enthusiastic, get the importance of it and are ready to drive it forward. But then we've got two people who are on the periphery and they're not quite bought in. The problem with that is the people in the organization aren't stupid. And the moment they see a couple of the exec team who aren't fully bought into the new culture or the idea that there's going to be a new culture, people sit back and say, no, this isn't going to happen. And what we say is when it comes to culture change, we need the senior team to decide their reputation. They've got to rest their reputation that this new culture is going to take a hold and be front and center in all of the activities. So There's that work with the senior team, which sometimes requires some uplift of capability in some areas. There's certainly the initial work around what is the new culture? What does it look like? And then formulating the teams who's going to be involved in shaping whatever combination of cultural narrative there is. You know, most organizations will have some combination of purpose, values, vision, maybe mission. Don't have to have all of them, but it's normally some combination of that. We then go through the process of shaping what they are. And values is a very common one, for example. Ideally, an organization's values will be representative of the most commonly shared values of the people who make up the organization. Because one of the things that really makes organizational values stick is the people who make up the organization's ability to align their own values, or at least some of their own values, with the organization's values. There's a lovely bit of research out there from Jim Cousins and Barry Posner that talks about this in detail, that if people can have conversations about their values and the company values, then it'll increase engagement. So we look at how are we going to get people involved? You know, if this is a 30,000-person organization, we can't survey everyone's values and bring them together. So at a minimum, we might just have the exec and a cross-section of other people. To what degree are we going to shape the vision to a final point as an executive team? And then we're going to engage people in it versus bringing people into the conversation to shape it. So that's all part of the initial piece. I really get that. But now you're going to go and survey a fair number of people to find out what their values are. Mm. Richard, what is a value? Uh, it's a great question. So on an individual level, the values are the things that are most important to us, really. Okay. We do this on probably most of the leadership programs we run, whether there's an established set of values in the organization or not, where we will get the leadership community together that we're working with, and we'll ask them, what's most important to you, really? And it's not what's most important to you as a CFO or somebody who works in this organization. It's what's most important to you, really, as a person. And I'm looking for somewhere between four and eight things. And I'll typically frame it by saying, you know, if you write down my massive house on the hill and my big red shiny sports car, you're probably not thinking about it quite deeply enough. And it'll be different for everybody. But typically people will say things like honesty, freedom, family, health, those kinds of things. And what we look for with when we do that in a team, we then get people to find other people in the room 
who have got shared values, where is there overlap between our values as human beings? Because by doing that, you're already starting to get people to connect differently as human beings. Because if we understand, you know, you and I might be different personality types, we might have different backgrounds, we might be in different roles. But if there's some overlap between the things that are most important to us, really as human beings, then we'll forgive some of those kind of personality foibles. So that's the individual level. From an organizational level, values are, are the real cultural compass. It's what we're stating is important to us in how we go about the work. And this is where the link between these two things really comes into importance, if you like. It really sheds light on it is if there is a set of organizational values and the people in the organization don't correlate to them, if there's no overlap between the individual's values and the organization's values, then it's almost impossible for them to live and breathe those organization's values. So it doesn't matter how much money we spent on creating them or how the wording of values is something we often get into conversations about with values, you know, and some people like really kind of um, unusual wording and quite quirky values. And other people want really straightforward ones and we get into, should they be sentences? Should they be single words? What's much more important to that is can you people in the organization relate to those values? Can they link them together? Because only by that link being there, can we have a chance of bringing them to life? Can people live and breathe them? And that's certainly true for the top team. If people in the top team, you know, if you're a CFO in an organization and you were to write down the top four to eight things that are most important to you, really, and then you look at your organization's values and you don't feel like there's a link or an overlap, then it's going to be really hard for you to model the way as a leader in that organization. And it probably some asks some questions about your fit. In fact, if that's the case, I suspect somebody doing that probably isn't that happy in that organization or thinks the organization should change their values. That is a very, very interesting one to say, okay, we've got some organized, we've done a survey, we've got some values, we've got a lot of common ground here that we can interpret into the values of the organization. Okay, So there are, therefore, you've gone through the right process, but then you will have people on the ground that don't conform to those values. Now, mm. what do you do about those people? So you mentioned performance earlier on. One of the things we do spend time on is helping people to understand how you create really good performance measures. Yes. So I think we'd all agree that performance measures, whether they're objectives or KPIs or targets of any sort, they should be linked to the strategic framework, which is one of the challenges of not having a clear line strategy. Then how do we know what we're measuring performance-wise to the individual? But when we look at performance measures, we always suggest there should be three elements in an individual's performance measure. So let's say I have a set of objectives set by my boss. So in those objectives, there should be some clear, smart objectives that tells me and my boss whether I'm doing a good job or not. And it should make that performance conversation fairly straightforward. I should either be doing it or I'm not. Then it's probably going to be useful to have, let's say that I have three objectives that are my performance objectives. I then might have a fourth, which we call the stretch objective, which is my ability to develop and show I have kind of potential at the level above. So it might be an objective which comes from my boss. It might be one of my boss's objectives or part of one of my boss's objectives, which if I have a go and I don't achieve it, I'm not overperforming, 
but it gives me a chance to stretch outside of my normal role. Then I'll have a fifth objective, and it might be something as simple as saying, and you do all of the above in line with the company's culture or in line with the company's values. So what we do is we start to make culture part of our performance management systems. Okay. Because I believe that the hardest thing for most people to manage, if you're a line manager, probably the hardest thing you have to manage is the person who's a really high performer, but is culturally a mismatch. You know, a really high performer, but is attitudinally incorrect. It's really hard to sit down with somebody like that because they're probably performing really highly, but they're really upsetting everybody along the way. So by building that measure into formal performance measurement, it gives us the opportunity to do something about that. And it's important because of where we started this whole conversation, because if we have people who are culturally misaligned, the organization can't perform long term. If your culture is not a strategic enabler, it'll become a strategic blocker. Because well, in my team then, if I'm not behaving right, if I'm culturally misaligned and my boss doesn't manage it or chooses not to, eventually the good people around me start to get upset and eventually leave, which means you end up with an underperforming team. Yeah, and you end up with exactly the culture that you weren't trying to get in the first place. Exactly. It has an impact on your deliverables. I think if you're sitting there as a CFO and you're looking at the culture or looking at the organization's values and you're seeing a mismatch to your own values, you should be thinking yourself about, am I in the right place? If those are values that you really do hold dearly, Mm. then they're not things that you can easily change. I can think from a consulting background, there's a firm of consultants that I've worked for their competition, but I would never, ever work for them because they they were probably the best payers in the industry, but they had a reputation for a certain type of person that we would refer to as a clone, turning up, operating in a particular way, doing vastly long working days, dropping everything at a minute's notice because the boss wanted them to descend on somewhere else and having virtually no life outside of work. And to me, that was an organization I was never prepared to go for. I much preferred our culture where there was a load of flexibility, recognition that we spent, yeah, a lot of time on client side, a lot of time away from home. But we had a thing that you would try and work at home on Fridays. And hey, if there was personal stuff to do on Friday and you'd already worked four days that were pretty flat out, well, there's no problem doing the personal stuff and billing the fifth day, the client still. And if there were issues with family and so on, they got sorted. And we were very human and very, very people-focused. And that, to me, is a classic example of, you know, I couldn't have worked in the other culture. If I'd found myself in an organisation that had been taken over by the other one, I'd be leaving fairly quickly. (laughs) Yeah. There's another bit of jeopardy in there as well. You're absolutely right, because if you're a CFO, not only are the most senior finance person in the organization, but you are part of the leadership team by nature. My favorite piece of leadership research, and this is research that's been done over and over again for 40 years, the survey's done every three to five years, identifies the top four characteristics that make followers follow leaders. It's one of the reasons why it's my most favorite research, because it doesn't say, what did Steve Jobs do or what did Barack Obama do? It doesn't say we've got to be like those people. Instead, it uncovers what is it that makes people follow us as leaders. 
And over 40 years, all the way around the world, I think the last survey about 3 million people, consistently and pretty much all the way around the world and all the way over 40 years, the number one characteristic has remained the same. Now, in the research, they call it honesty. But actually, when you dig around underneath it, it's not about honesty in a pure, you know, always tell the truth kind of way. But actually, it's more about are you authentic? Are you congruent? You know, my favorite way of describing this doesn't carry well beyond the UK, but in the UK, we'll, we all know what it means. It's like what we want from our leaders is they do what they say on the tin. If you remember the old Ron Sealwood's yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is by far the most important thing. So if you want your people to follow you with energy and commitment and intensity and walk through walls for you, there are four things you need to do consistently. And that's the most important thing by far. Now, if you're in an organization where the organization's values don't connect with yours and vice versa, then it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to live and breathe those values. And if you're a leader in an organization that has values at all, then it is really important that you live and breathe those values. So to go back to your point, if you're a CFO in an organization and you don't feel like your values connects with the organization's values, then you probably should think really long and hard about going and finding an organization to work for where you do feel culturally like you belong. So I'm conscious that we've been talking for a long time here and we probably continue this conversation probably for another two hours because you're to an area that I find personally absolutely fascinating. But I'm thinking from a finance leader's point of view, there are some clear messages in here. Number one is strategy lies with you as much as it does with anybody else in the leadership team. Do not shy away from it. And I know that a lot of finance leaders think they've got a role in bits of formulating strategy. No, you've got a role in the whole thing from beginning to end. Number two thing that I'd take away from this is to say, well, you're the person that should own measurement. So that's where common understanding of strategy comes from. So one of your key roles as finance leader is to be clear of what the quantification of the strategic objectives are. And we've seen examples there of you know, different people on the leadership team being half a billion pounds out and never actually realize it. Well, no, finance leaders should be doing that. And if you are in charge of the measurement, well, you should be going along to the the likes of the cybersecurity person who couldn't identify the strategic objective and having the conversation saying, what are you measuring that is going to contribute towards delivering this overall goal? But I think the biggest message that I'm taking away from this is sit down and give yourself an hour or so and actually write your values down on a piece of paper. Have you ever actually done that before? And I probably think that nine out of 10 people haven't. Richard, that has been fascinating. Thank you for being this week's guest on the Growth CFO Show. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you for having me.